Welcome to my podcast, Deep in the Sea. I am Mirko Giordani and I will accompany you on a fantastic journey over Southeast Asia and India. I will interview top politicians, businessmen, analysts and professors from the region. And if you want to understand one of the most dynamic countries in the world, you can listen to this podcast on my website, deepinthesea.org, on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcast, iTunes, and other famous podcasting platforms such as TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, etc., etc., etc. And if you want to follow my daily content, you can find me on LinkedIn as Mirko Giordani and the same on Facebook and Twitter. Here we are again at Deep in the Sea, the only podcast, at least here in Europe, that deals entirely with Southeast Asia and India. And today my guest is Paul Podolsky, which is author of Rising a Thief, is an investor with 20 plus years in Wall Street, and he's the host of Things I Didn't Learn in School, and he's also a former senior portfolio strategist at Bridgewater Associate. How are you, Paul? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for having me. So, Paul, uh, uh, the first thing that you have asked to me, like, is why you have dealt with Southeast Asia and India. I have explained to you it's because of my experience, first of all, in King's College and after I have met with Parakana. And after you have asked me, like, why are you inviting me to discuss about it? You know, like I have read your article in South China Morning Post where I am following you now pretty much every time you are publishing and you have written an article saying as Joe Biden takes over as US president should investor bet on American or Chinese stocks. I want to make the argument of your article a bit more general and broad and I would love to exclude China for a second. It's a too much big argument for me and for my little podcast. So I want to ask you. Um, what do you think about should investor bet on American or Asian stocks? You know, like there is this buzz, this uh, um, noise about the future is Asian. Parakana wrote a book about it, about the decline of the West, the decline of America and the, and the raising of uh, Asia, but especially Southeast Asia. So I want to ask you, what do you, how do you see the future of Southeast Asia in particular? And I want to ask you something that I'm really curious to understand from your point of view as an investor. So you don't have, I believe, any political bias or any kind of a moral bias according to investment and trade. I have discussed a lot this argument, especially with Europeans ambassador of the EU in, in Jakarta and, and other diplomats, European diplomats in the Southeast Asia. They have said that given the economic clout of the European Union and the EU in general, they can patronage, they can say to Southeast Asian countries, single Southeast Asian countries such as Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, you know, we will not do a trade deal with you if you don't raise your standards in human rights, for example. Do you think that this is correct? Do you think that uh, from a point of view of an investor, this uh, is paying off? Or simply we need to put in context and say, okay, we are doing a trade deal because it's convenient for us. 
it's convenient for us because the trade-off is okay. So what's your point of view on this? So there's a lot, first of all, good questions, and there's a lot there. So there's an element about what the investment opportunities is. There's an element about the impact of trade. And then there's a question about what should be linked to the trade. So let me talk about all of those separately. Uh, they all interrelate, but they're important. The first thing is on the investments, what you should do. I think the key thing is, is to have a good framework when you think about investing. In other words, the, the, the way you make money in markets is you look at what is already discounted at the price, what's already expected to be there, and then what do you think is going to unfold relative to those conditions. So when you buy a stock or you buy a bond, there's a certain set of expectations about what's going to happen next already there. And then you make money if things do better than people thought that was going to be. So if you look now at the United States and broadly the area you're interested in Southeast Asia, the big thing that stands out right now is that expectations for the United States to continue to do well are very, very high. And expectations for Asia to do well are much lower. What that means is from an investment standpoint, you could have the same level of economic growth in the United States and in Asia, but because the expectations are lower in Asia, that same level of growth would produce a stock rise in Asia and wouldn't necessarily choose one of the United States. So my key advice to people, the thing I was talking about in that article in South China Morning Post is, you definitely want to split your bets. Do not concentrate your bets. And I think that having Asia as part of a portfolio is incredibly attractive from a European perspective and from a US perspective. Most investors in the world hold too much of whatever country they're from. So if you look at the portfolio of Italian investors, there's a lot of Italy in it. But then if you ask an investor in Vietnam, do they want to have a portfolio that's concentrated in Italian assets? All of them would say, no, I don't you know, Italy's small country. So this is always true that people have a bias to own what they have at home, and I think it's a terrible idea. So I would definitely be investing in Asia, and I am investing in Asia. I've actually increased my exposure to Asian stocks uh, more recently. And then I think that the fact that the virus has been better contained, et cetera, in Asia, I think that, that that speaks well to it. So that's an investment. Then if you turn to trade, I think that there, yeah, trade is important and it's interesting, but it's also easy to over-exaggerate how big of a deal trade is between, say, Asia and the rest of the world and how much these trade deals will change economic output. So to cite but one example, and, and I know you said not to talk about China, but I'm going to just talk about it a little bit. There's an enormous amount of focus in the press about the trade war between the United States and China. Most people have no idea how much the United States exports to China. The United States is a $20 trillion economy. Total exports to China are $100 billion. It's nothing. It's nothing. So if exports double, from 100 billion to 200 billion, as a percentage of a 20 trillion dollar economy, it has almost no effect. It's interesting for the newspapers, it's interesting for people to have policy debates, but in terms of the actual impact on China or the United States, it's almost nothing. So I'm a big believer in free trade. I think it's, I think it's good for everybody involved. It's very disruptive, and that's part of what we're seeing globally. It's very disruptive because it changes wealth but I'm pro free trade because I think the benefits are way out. Then there's a third part of your question, which is 
how do you weigh the fact that many of these countries have a different government and have a different culture than, uh, than Europe or the United States? And I think that it's very important to try to look at a country through its own eyes. So many of these countries do not have a history of, you know, it varies on the country, it's a rich heterogeneous area, but it's not the same political tradition as the United States or uh, Europe. And it's reinforced by a cultural tradition that's very different. And the history shows if you try to change the government structure and you try to change the culture, you will fail. And the most classic example is the U.S. effort to try to change Vietnam. And, you know, Vietnam was one place beforehand, and it's very similar afterwards. At the same time, you have to understand the political pressures that are on Western politicians. So they are torn between commercial incentives and political incentives. And the political incentives include basically an endorsement of the U.N. Charter of Human Rights. And this is going to remain a part of their policy approach, I think. And to expect otherwise, I think, would be a little bit naive. Sorry, it's a to, long answer to a short question. <laughs> I want to I want to ask you something else. I have discussed also about green policies. And yes. I have discussed with an official from ASEAN, which is involved in energy policies in ASEAN. Obviously, like, this doesn't want to be like a question focusing on ASEAN or specifically in some countries, but I would like to understand, like, in a perspective East versus West. You know, like here in the West, we are we are making a big, very big effort, not only politically, but also in putting money on it. Like here, yes. Europe is the most important example. After the pandemic, you know, like you are expected that you are supporting small and medium businesses to get back to work. And in the meanwhile, the European Commission just for the first time in the history issued this kind of a common debt called the Next Generation EU, which is helping European countries to become greener. So apart from the fact that I can't find the connection between the pandemic and the need to become green, but whatever, I want to understand if our efforts to make our economy greener are the same as the one that in our Eastern partners are doing. And I am mentioning, for example, China and Southeast Asia. What's yeah, your I point of view? I think that there's a broad agreement that, that changes in the global temperature can be incredibly disruptive to Southeast Asia as well. I mean, there's a classic thing, will India become rich before it becomes hot? So I do believe that there is a real interest, which makes sense based on self-interest, to try to have policies that will minimize the disruptive effects of temperature change on Southeast Asia. At the same time, you have to weigh those against the desire for survival. So when people are earlier on, in wealth accumulation, they're obviously going to have a different set of trade-offs that they're willing to tolerate to get to uh, where they want to go. And so you see this, like how much do you shut down coal plants that create jobs and also create cheap energy relative to what the long-term costs are. And that's really what the political process is. It can be a more what I described in some of the writing that you're talking about, it can be the decision-making of a closed society, or it can be a decision-making of an opening society, but they're both gonna have to deal with that, that the temperature changes there are disruptive 
to economic stability. They can become more so there, just like they are in Europe. And they have to weigh that across the disruption of a too quick shift in industry that will destroy wealth. And you can see every country there, I think, wrestling with that in different ways. And I, I don't think the, the reason they're wrestling with it, it's not easy to figure out how to strike that trade-off. The problem is that, for example, in Indonesia, uh, new refineries are being built and the trade of coal is just rising. I seriously believe that when you have to lift from poverty people, when you need to... I have spoken with this analyst from Indonesia, which, which is working in green policies. Yeah. And he told me like very simple stuff, you know, here in the West, the problem for uh, young people, but not only young people, is how fast is my internet connection? Is it 4G or 5G? The problem in some communities in Indonesia, for example, in the, in the Eastern side of Indonesia is, do I have electricity to heat right. my house? And they don't. So usually they prefer to have coal industries that also give job, coal power plant that gives job and cheap electricity, rather than betting in these long-term renewables. Right. And, and so that, that makes, but that makes total sense, which is that where are people going to be on that spectrum between dealing, paying the long-term costs relative to the, the short-term ones? Uh, and I think the, the thing that is a lot of people are misanticipating in terms of future growth is that the thing that has hampered investment, where they could have both, where they could have rapid growth and that they can have the ability to make these changes in the infrastructure in a way that creates jobs for these places is the ability to borrow money in their own currency. So there's a huge change in the world. When I started off in financial markets, places like Indonesia, places like Thailand, these places, they had to borrow in a currency that was not theirs, typically dollars, sometimes other currencies. Because of these changes that have happened really over my career, many of these countries can now borrow in their own currencies and borrow at very low interest rates. So, and this is part of what's led to China's boom. And I think it can become increasingly a place of the boom of these other countries. And that would help create a balance between the short-term costs and the long-term costs of these environmental changes. And by the way, if you look at these countries, the relative impact of picking up a little bit of credit compared to improving their trade is much, much bigger. The credit will have a much bigger impact on their growth than the trade, because the trade as a percentage of their GDP is relatively small, and the percentage to increase borrowing in their own currency has much more potential to actually create growth. So, Paul, you write on the South China Morning Post, so you're writing into an Asian newspaper. So my final question for you is, is the future Asian? Like, do you believe that the future of politics and economics pass from the Strait of Malacca and the South China Sea rather than the port of New York and the Mediterranean Sea? <laughs> no, I don't. In the sense that I don't think that the future is any one's nation. I think we're moving into a very multilateral world. So when I grew up, it was the Soviet Union of the United States. Then the Soviet Union collapsed. 
Then it was the G7. And now increasingly it's the G20 that are sort of the key decision-making bodies. And I think that's the world that we're moving into. It's a G20 where there is the West is really important and Asia is really important. And it's a very confusing place because it's more multilateral, but it's also so interesting and so full of possibility for people of your generation. I don't think there's gonna be one reserve currency. It's not just gonna be the dollar or it's not gonna be the Euro. There's going to be multiple currencies. And so these questions of where do you save your wealth? Where is the best economic growth going to be? It becomes way more confusing than it's ever been. But I actually think there's something beautiful about that confusion. So you believe, like uh, Nassim Taleb, that uh, there are something that uh, gain from confusion and gain from uh, disorder? Absolutely. I think that there is disorder is, a, is, is an element of our life, and it has been. All of the miracles, we're having this conversation on screen right now, through microphones, in two different time zones. Literally, nobody dreamed of stuff like this when I was growing up, or they just barely dreamed of it. Now it's commonplace. We don't think it's remarkable that you're there and I'm here and we're having this conversation. But that process that yielded that is highly disruptive. There used to be telephone companies that would have made a ton of money doing this, They've lost their jobs. They've lost their capital. We do it like this. So the nature of economic dynamism is disruption. I embrace that disruption, but it's also easy to say that's because I've benefited from it, and it's true. And the political disruption that I think that you're seeing in Italy, in Poland, in Hungary, in the United States, in Russia, in countries in Asia, is all related to the- I would add also the UK. I would add also the UK. UK. Sure. There's many countries you could add, but it is related to the rate of change that we're living through. And do you look at that as something to be embraced? Or do you find that the costs of that change are too high? And I don't know when this is going to be aired, but, you know, last week everybody was stunned at these people storming the Capitol in Washington, D.C., where I grew up. And I think that one thing that these people share in common is they have not benefited from the economic changes in any significant way. So I believe that with this uh, poll, uh, we are going to finish this podcast. And seriously, thank you very much for being my guest. It has been like one of the most eclectic podcasts I have recorded. We have started with Asia and we have finished with the storming of Capitol Hill. Obviously, with Americans, it's every time like getting back to America, getting back to the center of the world. <laughs> I think that the, uh, the center of the world is definitely shifting. And um, I think that that shift towards Asia is very real and everybody needs to understand it. Certainly every investor needs to. Perfect. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Thank you.